Welcome to the Auxiliary Chamber, the International Law Podcast. Welcome back everyone to the Auxiliary Chamber. I am thrilled to introduce this episode and today's guest, Maud Soliev. As COP27 is currently ongoing, we're going to dive into the current state of climate litigation, the first Russian climate litigation case, and the implications of climate litigations within the European courts. As an introduction to today's guest, Maud is an established expert in human rights, international criminal law, international humanitarian law, and a leading authority on ecocide and the development of creative legal thinking to address the environmental and climate crisis. Without further ado, here's episode 20 of the Auxiliary Chamber focusing on climate litigation. Welcome back, everyone, to the Auxiliary Chamber. I am honored to be here today with Maud Sarliv. And today we're going to be looking at the Russian climate litigation case. How are you today, Maud? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for spending your very busy time with me this evening. Of course, when we're recording, we're recording this on Monday. And the podcast hopefully will go up on Friday. So we're right in the middle of the Conference of the Parties. And I was wondering maybe to start off with if you could maybe explain a bit of the context that we're in, what is happening right at the moment, and why is the Congress of the Party important when we look at this case? Well, let me go back to the basics, perhaps. So COP27 is the Conference of the Parties, is the 27th United Nations Climate Change Conference. It's more commonly referred to as Conference of the Parties of the UNFCCC, United Nations Framework for Climate Change, for the Climate Change Conference. And this year, it's being held from the 6th of November until the 18th of November 2022 in Sharm el-Sheikh, in Egypt. Now, this year, COP27 is expected to be a, a working COP, let's say. So no landmark agreement comparable to what happened in COP21, for example, the Paris Agreement, where all nations committed to undertake effort to combat climate change, adapt to its effects and assist uh, developing countries to do so. But that doesn't make the COP uh, less important. So because this COP, like any COP, is a chance for countries to take meaningful steps toward tackling the climate crisis. And so hopefully, even though you have usually a lot of people, including NGOs and various participants and states and lots of politics involved, but let's hope to see incremental progress on the key issues associated with climate change. But we're not expecting any major announcements. Well, hopefully we'll be happily surprised or hopefully there'll be, you know, more impact than, than we think. Context is not particularly helpful given the other crises that are ongoing at the moment war in Ukraine and uh, inflation and the economic crisis, which do not make the climate much less important, quite the reverse. As you mentioned, there's all these different events and impacts that are happening. Of course, we've seen the, the war in Russia and Ukraine. And I think that that can lead us a bit more into our topic of today. We're going to look at Russia's climate litigation or Russia's climate case. And to start with, could you maybe explain to us a little bit more what climate litigation would be or what these activists in Russia are trying to accomplish with this case today? Well, there's a, a fundamental difference, even though there are overlaps between environmental litigation and climate litigation, because 
the environment and the climate are dynamic and fluid concepts, which, which make it difficult intrinsically to define and define the corresponding litigation. So I, I would tentatively say that climate litigation covers any lawsuit primarily aimed at, at reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Whereas environmental litigation touches upon environmental destruction, which um, covers, uh, for example, any types of pollution. It can be water pollution, it can be uh, soil pollution, it can be air pollution. And uh, the example I can give you to illustrate the difference is between, uh, so if you've got, for example, lawsuits filed in relation to the illegal dis disposal of hazardous waste, that would fall within the scope of environmental litigation, but not necessarily under the scope of climate litigation. I hope that clarifies the difference between climate litigation and environmental litigation. As far as climate litigation is concerned, so I can tell you that, uh, again, by way of examples, it includes cases challenging uh, corporations um, for their responsibility for climate change and that responsibility is quite diluted given how climate operates. For example, any corporations involved in fossil fuel extraction, treatment, uh, use, you also have, aside from cases involving corporate responsibility, you have cases involving state responsibility, such as the Ojenda case, and you can tell me if I pronounce it properly, against the Dutch government. <laughs> um, so that was the case. It was the first uh, climate case and the most famous one because it led the way to climate litigation uh, per se. So it was the first in the world. I think it commenced in 2013, so even before the Paris Agreement. And then 2015 was the first appeal, 2018 final appeal. And in that case, the outcome established that the Dutch government had a legal duty to reduce urgently and significantly its greenhouse gas emissions in light with its human rights obligations. So that case inspired many lawyers and activists um, and opened the floodgates, so to speak. Um, and a number of uh, subsequent uh, proceedings were commenced along the same lines or similar um, legal grounds, or a variety of legal grounds, because it all depends on domestic legislation or on the jurisdiction and the applicable law or the procedural framework. So, you know, the legal world is your oyster. Um, but the most recent example is the lawsuit filed by Russian activists against the Kremlin, basically, uh, last December, which, was, which is a pretty bold move under the circumstances. And they argued that the climate strategy fails to comply with the national and international climate and human rights obligations of the Russian Federation, which again is a pretty bold move. That's a long answer to a short question. No, that's great. And I think that you, as you mentioned, we had discussed a little bit before already about the difference between environmental litigation and climate litigation. And it's something that I uh, myself struggle with within differentiating. So, so thank you very much for that. And now if we're looking today at the Russian case, which is, of course, the first in Russia, but one of many new climate litigation cases, 
Have you noticed a big difference between the type of cases that we have versus maybe countries and corporations? What are the differences there that often are found? Again, there's, there's a wide variety, wide range of, of legal arguments, depending on the case and jurisdiction, uh, be it international or national, be it against states or corporations, being against individuals or legal entities. The big issue at the moment with corporations is that the legal framework is very fluid. You don't have a lot of uh, obligations, particularly at the international level which force companies, corporations, legal entities to behave properly, let's say, or to behave in a way that complies with human rights and environmental um, values that are otherwise protected by, you know, covenants, international covenants, the 1960 international covenants or a bunch of treaties, which is one of the issues that the legal world is struggling with when we want to protect uh, the planet and mankind so to speak, but, but corporate accountability is an issue. There's a lot going on on that front with, uh, well, ever since the 2011 UN guiding principles were issued, you also have OECD guiding principles dealing with corporate accountability, and each and every year you have an attempt to negotiate a treaty on corporate accountability with a big gathering in Geneva. I think it's... Um, the gathering is right now or later on in November with the Business and Human Rights Forum. So efforts are going in the direction of creating more accountability for corporate actors. But but I would say that compared to state responsibility, the law needs to be adapted and adjusted. If we then, as you mentioned, turn over to state responsibility, as maybe a final introduction piece before we dive a bit more into the case, why are these national climate cases so important? Why is it important for activists, such as in this case here, to go to the states and to, to look at these obligations? And you mentioned that they were often doing this under human rights principles. What are the kind of human rights elements that are being looked at and incorporated into these cases? Well, I'm not an activist myself, so I, I, I struggle a bit to, to respond on behalf of the Russian activists who filed this case or any other activists, to be honest. But I can tell you that the human rights that are most often used to ground the legal claims are the right to life, the right to clean water, the right to edible food, the right to uh, a healthy environment, which is also a right that's being promoted. And there's a campaign to identify it as an autonomous right with the amazing efforts of the UN Special Rapporteur on the environment, I think. There's also the right to traditional spiritual religious life because a lot of spirituality and religion and traditions are usually associated with the forest or the environment, particularly when it comes to Indigenous people. Indigenous people rights are also rights very often associated to these claims. Uh, The right to property, the right to land, I mean, you name it. Uh, Not all of these rights are protected under the European Convention of Human Rights, which is um, sort of the human rights body targeted there or applicable there to this particular case event, uh, ultimately. If we look into then, let's say, the Russian case itself, you mentioned that, of course, there's all these different rights and now there's rights to a healthy environment and that is being brought up. Why in Russia in particular, or maybe just specifically in this case, 
why is climate change having such a large impact on them particularly or their environment? I don't think that the impact is on Russia specifically. The, 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 the specificity of climate change is that it impacts everyone. And sadly, it primarily impacts those who contribute the least, such as you know the deserted areas or uh, the extreme north polar regions. The uh, but that's not only in Russia; that's also in Canada. That's also in in the northernmost uh, parts of the United States, um, Scandinavia, etc. The Antarctic is a little bit different because it's not inhabited but as far as Russia is concerned um, well it, as it turns out 60% of its territory is covered with uh, what's called permafrost which is a soil that normally never defreeze or unfreezes and one of the impacts of climate change or global warming is that parts of um, this permafrost is now melting Thawing, which then gives way to escalating or cascading effects, which have not been completely un- identified or understood by scientists. But one example is that you've got craters of methane opening up in Siberia. And the reason behind it is not necessarily known. Um, but together with that, you also have in these same permafrost regions spores of uh, bacteria such as anthrax being released which kill lots of people or uh, fauna or flora such as you know reindeers i think there was a case of 2000 reindeers uh, being found dead um, some years ago and and also indigenous people again from these regions are being on the front line of this impact you also have um, wild fires caused by the proliferation of um, insects in these regions because of warmer temperatures that degrade the forest, which then are more susceptible to being burned. Um, Another effect that's specific to Russia and the Arctic is the albedo effect. Basically, light reflects on white, but is absorbed by darker colours. So the least ice you've got, the least solar um, energy is reflected. So it creates, again, an escalating effect, whereby as the ice cap melts, then uh, the ocean is getting warmer and warmer because it absorbs more and more solar energy. Whereas before, with the ice cap, it would reflect the solar energy. So for all these reasons, uh, perhaps Russia, which again has 60% of its uh, territory belonging to, or within the scope of the Arctic uh, territory of Siberia, is directly concerned and directly impacted, more so perhaps than countries with temperate climates, such as most European countries. Thank you. Then as a final introduction to this Russian case before we dive deeper into it, could you maybe tell us a bit more who are the plaintiffs? Who are the people that are bringing this case in Russia? So um, the case was brought by two organizations um, and 18 Russian citizens from all over the country. So the two organizations are the Moscow Helsinki Group 
and another organization I will try to pronounce properly called the Kaliningrad Regional Non-Governmental Organization, Ekozashita. And both these organizations are amongst the, the oldest in Russian civil society and, and leading actors in human rights and environmental protection. And they are particularly um, worthy of our, our um, admiration because the civil society in Russia is, is dealing with a very hostile environment, to say the least. So that, that's the two organizations. And then the 18 Russian citizens so obviously they're all, uh, not all, but a lot of them are anonymous. But what's really interesting is that amongst them, you have the, the representatives of four indigenous communities from the northern most, most um, parts of the territory, um, as well as five members of the youth-led global movement Fridays for Future, which was started by Greta Thunberg in 2018. What is it then that these activists are arguing or, or where are these activists arguing? Well, one thing that I should have mentioned also, um, perhaps as an introduction to this case, is that Russia is the world's fourth largest emitter. It's competing with China, the US, India, and, it, and, and then you've got Russia and then Japan, Germany, Iran, etc., etc. But surprisingly, um, well, not surprisingly, it's it's the fourth largest emitter, probably because of the structure of its economy. The arguments that were used by the activists behind the claim is that the Russian Federation is a member to all the UN climate treaties, like I was mentioning as an introduction, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, and the Paris Agreement. And under these treaties and agreements, the Russian Federation is supposedly bound to take action to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to a level that's compatible with what's called the achievement of the net zero target by 2050. So basically, it's the, the common effort to keep climate change or global warming to rise to a level that's not more than 1.5 degrees which is already something that's been kind of given up on. So that's the introduction. But that was supposedly the purpose of a decree, a presidential decree that was issued in 2020 by President Putin. And its subsequent um, governmental measures, which were issued again between 2020 and 2021. And these documents define the, the, the Russian climate strategy. But what they say is basically, we're going to increase our greenhouse gas emissions, but this is all going to be sorted and absorbed by the Russian taiga, the Russian forest, the boreal forest. There's absolutely no detail in the strategy as to how this is going to be implemented. Scientists also agree that um, this sort of... Uh, Carbon absorption strategies are highly uh, risky because there's no guarantee that they'll work out. I won't get into the details of the science because I'm not competent. But so all of it seems to be not really precise and more an attempt to hide the reality, which is uh, we are committing to inaction. And, and so the, the submissions that were filed last September by, by the Russian activists defined Russian climate strategy fails to comply with the country's climate obligation and also violates a wide range of fundamental human rights protected by 
not only the Russian constitution, but also the treaties it has subscribed to. If we look at maybe where the case is at in its life cycle, do you know a bit more information about the first steps that have been taken or where the case is? Procedurally speaking? Yeah. You had said that it was in front of the Supreme Court. So the case is an administrative case. It's dealing with, again, I'm not a Russian lawyer, so I'm, I'm just going to give you the information that was provided to me with, with no pretension to any expertise in the matter. But so it's an administrative case that was brought before the Supreme Court. That there's a jurisdiction within the Supreme Court and you have to pass several instances before um, the uh, all the remedies are exhausted. The case which was again filed on the 11th of September, was rejected on admissibility grounds uh, in the beginning of October. An appeal has been filed. A decision on this appeal will uh, be delivered in the beginning of December. Then there's another instance of of appeal. Uh, And uh, if I'm not mistaken, that's going to be the last one before the ultimate decision is delivered. Some time in March and then once that's happened all um, avenues will have been exhausted and the the, the case will be in a position to be brought before the European Court of Human Rights. Do you think that that's the ultimate goal or the most likely outcome that will be brought in front of the European Court? Yes. Well, let's say the Russian judiciary is not famous for uh, its outstanding performance when it comes to the rule of law. And I would be very surprised if uh, the activists behind um, these proceedings were not aware of it. I think the ultimate strategy, particularly when you look at the timing of their submission, which was five days before Russia was no longer going to be a high contracting party to the CHR, uh, to the European Convention for Human Rights. Uh, I think they, they, they had that in mind when they filed. If the case eventually goes to the European Court, what do you see a likely outcome there? Or have we seen previous judgments that have come to the European Court on these types of climate litigations? There, there hasn't been that many cases brought before the European Court of Human Rights related exclusively to climate change matters. Um, there's a, a jurisprudence that's been developing on the right to a healthy environment, which is very interesting. Um, but the climate litigation cases have reached that level and that court only recently. The, the, the first one, if I'm not mistaken again, was a Swiss case uh, filed by self-identified elderly citizens regarding the impact on their health. Uh, of climate change. Then there was another case regarding Portuguese young people filed last year and a few others, but it's still in the pipes, in the, the judicial pipes. Not, no judgment, to my knowledge, has been delivered on either of these cases. So perhaps the, the Russian case, when it gets to uh, that stage, will finalize the bouquet of uh, claims uh, on which the um, European Court of Human Rights will be um, ruling. And it's going to be incredibly important because it will set some sort of standard at the European level as far as climate change obligations are concerned, which will be 
a landmark decision. Absolutely. Now, it'll be an extremely important standard. Do you feel like this standard is currently missing? Do you feel like that was going to fill some sort of hole with this type of judgment? Or what would be the impact of this type of landmark case? The, the, the standard is, is, is definitely missing. So far, we have soft law um, because the Paris Agreement and the UNFCCC are, are setting soft law, law obligations. Um, and, and it's, um, I mean, of course, you've got domestic cases setting up domestic standards, but at the regional or international level, there's nothing so far or nothing set in stone or nothing uh, sufficiently specific and precise to, to guide policymakers in their efforts. Um, and that's what's really interesting when it comes to climate litigation is that precisely because there was some sort of uh, failure um, or shortage, shortcoming in, in, with the policymakers, the judiciary has taken over and is now apparently ruling on issues which um, should have been embraced by, by the policymakers in the first place. And with respect to international standards, there's, I think, a lot of, there's a campaign ongoing and has been ongoing for quite a while now with the International Criminal Court, which with Vanuatu. So Vanuatu is one of these really small um, Pacific islands, which is on the front line of climate change because the territory of Vanuatu is shrinking and obviously shrinking. And same for Tuvalu and Kiribati and a number of these other islands and, and they're trying to figure out a way to f get the uh, General Assembly of the UN to agree on the questions that would then be submitted to the International Criminal Court to um, clarify state responsibility when it comes to climate change. It's a complicated procedure and depending on the way you phrase the questions or the question um, but to the judges, it could also fire back. That would then be state responsibility under the Rome Statute for climate? International or... Court of Justice. Ah, yes, I was, I was already a little bit confused. Yeah, um, so it would be state responsibility under the UN Framework uh, Climate Change Conference or the Paris Agreement, or both. To round off our discussion for today... If we look a bit at a crisis that I'm sure we're all very familiar of in Europe, there's, of course, the energy crisis. And I was wondering if you maybe had some thoughts on how the Russian-Ukraine crisis, along with this energy crisis within Europe, actually impacts climate approaches and potentially this acceleration towards low-carbon economics. Well, that's the tragedy of, of the um, war uh, between Russia and Ukraine, is that it's having positive impacts sort of on the efforts of Europe to go faster in their transition towards a low carbon economy because they don't have a choice now because the, uh, the Russian gas supply is, is so difficult for geopolitical and political and military reasons. They have to limit their dependency and they have to do that to accelerate all the other efforts for uh, renewable energies or less consumption. The, the key word in September in France was sobriety. You had this word hammered on uh, every media possible, possible 
every day for weeks sobriety 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 and try not to consume too much electricity like i've got a candle in my room it's uh, <laughs> there's one next um, to me as well <laughs> and the, the current crisis um and the war between russia and ukraine and is turning out to be an accelerator for europe which is one of uh, the biggest consumer fossil fuels towards uh, an economy that's um less dependent on on fossil fuels and carbon then i guess it's almost having an unexpected impact or potentially an unexpected impact if you had looked at maybe what what might have happened um, unexpected from from putin's perspective probably on that note thank you so much for coming on to the podcast i think we've already discussed a lot for today we want to keep our time a bit shorter but thank you very much for your time and your very busy schedule Thank you. Thank you for uh, having me. And thank you for covering this very important topic and these very important efforts from these uh, Russian activists who, again, um, really deserve our admiration for what they're doing. And I think on that note, we will end the podcast for today. Thank you all for listening and supporting this episode of the Exhilarating Chamber. I would like to thank again our wonderful guest this week, Maud Saliev. Maud has also written an op-ed on this topic that will be linked in the description. I cannot recommend enough reading it and following this landmark case. The podcast will be back in a couple of weeks and talk to you all very soon.